being behind the scenes, I got to see what worked and what didn't. Everyone hates the annual review or at best tolerates the annual review. In developing countries, they don't even have wheelchairs for sale anywhere because nobody has the money. They're too busy, you know, trying to keep themselves alive. I'm Richard Gerhart. And I'm Elizabeth Gerhart. You've just heard some snippets from our show. Stay tuned for the rest. Want to patent your invention? The chance is near. You've given it heart. Now get it in gear. It's Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. I'm Richard Gearhart, founder of Gearhart Law, full service intellectual property law firm. And I'm Elizabeth Gearhart, not a lawyer, but I work at Gearhart Law doing the marketing and I have my own startup. Welcome to Passage to Profit, everyone. The show that's all about entrepreneurship, small businesses, and the intellectual property that helps them flourish. We have Stu McLaren, who is a membership and subscription services expert. And I am really looking forward to hearing about his programs. I've checked out his website and he's just got some amazing tools for marketing there that those of us in the podcasting business will completely and totally enjoy. And then we have Noah L. Pusey with Ripple Analytics. If you are a business owner, or even it doesn't matter if you only have a few employees, he lets your employees give anonymous feedback that you can then use. I This is such a brilliant idea. So I want to hear more about this. Definitely. And then we have somebody who is just doing amazing things in the world. Don Schoendorfer with Free Wheelchair Mission. Could you imagine crawling on the ground all day long and then suddenly this contraption shows up that you've never seen before that allows you to ride around? I mean, it's amazing what he's doing. I think that's really amazing work and can't wait to hear from him from that. But before we do that, it's time for IP in the news. And I guess I really hadn't thought about it too much, even as an intellectual property lawyer, but it turns out that you can get copyrights on tattoos. Well, our daughter will be happy to hear that. <laughs> and so will our son. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that she's like the owner of the tattoo. It's really the person who creates the tattoo that owns the copyright. Well, that's right, that. because the article says that this artist did it on another person. And so the way... Copyright usually works unless you have an agreement to the contrary. Copyright vests with the person who owns it, who's the creator. So the person who creates it owns the copyright. So even if you pay for it, the tattoo artist still owns the rights in the tattoo. A couple of times, tattoo artists have had their work so well regarded that other people, like especially in the gaming world, have copied that. For example, a lot of athletes have tattoos on their arms and people value those tattoos. And sometimes people have actually tried to copy those tattoos and use them, for example, in video games. And so a court case came up related to this issue where a tattoo artist sued a video game company because they were using his art. And well, in this case, this one I have, it was Catherine Alexander, and she had ink tattoos on WWE professional Randy Orton and Take-Two's WWE 2K videos game series used his likeness with the tattoos. She said all she wanted was a license. She wanted recognition. She wants to get paid for her work, right? Right. And she ended up winning, which is an usual because in the past courts had not really recognized the copyrights in tattoos. So this is the first time that happened. And she won like 
$670. So it wasn't like a lot of money, probably barely covered her legal fees, but it's now a step in the right direction, I guess, for tattoo artists who want to protect their works. Kind of an interesting case. So let's go to Richard's Roundtable. And so first, Stu, what do you think about tattoo art and copyrights? In hearing you talk about it, the first thought that went through my mind is like, what if it's a collaborative effort with the tattoo artist, but also with the person getting the tattoo? Like who owns the copyright in that scenario? If somebody's coming and bringing the ideas and then the artist is bringing those ideas to life. Yeah. In that case, it would be a co-authorship kind of arrangement and they would both have rights to exploit the work. And typically you don't have to get the permission of the other person to do that. But that said, the other person would still have the right to seek remedies from a third party. And in that case, if you're collaborating on the tattoo and the person who has the tattoo on their arms decides not to pursue it, the person who actually created the tattoo and put the artwork on your arm they still have rights to pursue it. So it does make it more complicated, but there is an answer to that question. And I guess the WWE person probably didn't want to pursue it because they already had licensed their likeness and they didn't want to upset the people that they were working with. It's interesting. I think regardless, what is made clear for me is to have that conversation up front with whoever you are working with, if it's a tattoo artist in this case, uh, just so everybody's clear on that. Absolutely. And just knowing the nature of the business, probably people don't really think about it. I don't know that the tattoo artist would think about it. I'm sure there's a lot of copying and ideas moving among tattoo artists. They look at others' work and they get inspired by it. So it kind of creates kind of an interesting situation. I think. Kenya, what are your thoughts? So I have an embarrassing copy tattoo story. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goody, I can hardly wait. (laughs) So when I was 17 years old, I got a tattoo without my parents' permission, and it was a stupid tattoo of a character. I will not say what, because to this day, I'm like, why did I ever do that? But it did belong to a very famous entertainment company, right? What's interesting, though, is when I got this tattoo, my tattoo artist was never like, oh, you can't use this particular character because you're not allowed to use this image or the likeness of this brand, which it never even crossed my mind until you actually brought this story up. So it does happen a lot in the tattoo space, people copying other art, people using characters that belong to other companies. So, oh, wow, I didn't realize like that was a thing. But now I'm like, I was such a culprit. Truth be told now, the tattoo is gone, it's lasered away, and it's covered up, so I don't have it anymore. But I was definitely one of those culprits. You were a walking infringer is what you were. (laughs) I was. was. (laughs) Wow. Well, we never knew this about you, Kenya, all these years, and you never told us about this tattoo that you And I bet you'll never guess what the tattoo is, and I'll never tell. I think only Norris (laughs) probably knows, but... So, Don, what do you think about all this stuff? Well, it's curious when your tattoo is on somebody who's fit, and then all of a sudden has that person and ages the yeah. tattoo's going to change it's going to morph you know all of a sudden what, what do you do then well, that's an awesome <laughs> question because the, if the image changes is there still a copyright infringement in- I don't know if I have a good answer to that one or not, but I guess if you're worried about damages before the trial, you should gain or lose some weight and change the image. And then maybe you can argue non-infringement. I think that's pretty good. Noah, what are your thoughts on this? I've got a few points. The first point I think is just the medium of tattoos, right? I mean, in 2023, we're talking about a different landscape from a copyright of art, right? 40 years ago, the case wouldn't probably have been heard when you have 
three, four or 5% of people with any ink on them. Now that it's a much more popular art form, I think you could see a lot more of these cases sort of coming to the surface. The second question or, or comment I would make is, how unique is the art? You know, how unique is what the artist put on the WWE participant? A lot of pro athletes have the John 316. I don't think you can copyright that, but it'd be interesting <laughs> to see how unique the art is. And then finally, you know, as a recovering attorney, I'm not sure of the deterrent value of a $3,600 award, unless right. they awarded attorney's fees, better to ask forgiveness than permission. And I think in this case where they might have to pay 3,600 bucks, I'm not sure if it was worth the battle. You know, I don't know how long the case took, but there's cost and time involved. And, and I think right. it would be interesting to see what that analysis was. Yeah. You raised some amazing points and it was actually a jury trial. So oh, wow. <laughs> so 3,600 definitely didn't cover it. That's a lot of people's time to make this decision. And so that's pretty amazing. You're right. I mean, one of the things that the article quotes is that the number of tattoos, it says here, and this is from IP Watchdog, by the way, this is an intellectual property law site uh, that's been around for a long time. But it says, according to 2021 data, roughly 13% of baby boomers had at least one tattoo compared wow. to 32% of Gen X and 41% of millennials. So your comment about tattoos mm -hmm. becoming more popular and this now becoming a bigger issue because the popularity of tattoos is well taken. Anyway, now on to our guest, Stu McLaren, and he's a membership and subscription service expert and founder of the Membership Experience and also Search IO and Village Impact and host of the Marketing Your Business podcast. Tell us about what is the Membership Experience and what was your inspiration for that? The Membership Experience is a training program where we help entrepreneurs add recurring revenue in their business through memberships. And this training program came from the fact that I owned a previous software company and it went on to become the world's number one membership platform for WordPress. And so I was fortunate because I was behind the scenes helping literally tens of thousands of people launch and grow their memberships on this platform. When I sold my shares, we were powering over 70,000 online communities and memberships in all kinds of different markets. So being behind the scenes, I got to see what worked and what didn't as it related to growing these memberships and subscriptions. And Ultimately, what I ended up finding was that there were a few counterintuitive things as it related to attracting an audience, as it related to acquiring new members to the membership and how they structure the content and so forth that really had a huge impact in the bottom line profits. And that's now what I share with others who also want to add recurring revenue to their business. There are really four main types of memberships. Uh, the first one would be called like a product-based membership. And you've probably seen these or experienced these, and it's where a company, instead of relying on a one-time transaction and hoping that their customers come back and buy from them again, they instead look to create a membership or subscription. And a great example of this is the Dollar Shave Club. This was started years ago, and instead of selling razors one time and hoping that people come back and buy them again, they created a subscription where you pay a monthly fee and razors are sent to you each and every month. So that's an example of a product-based membership. And I just want to say that I am a Dollar Shave Club member. I joined <laughs> them when they first started out and I've got drawers full of razors right now. I'll never have to buy another razor blade again. So it works out yeah. for them, but you have to remember to stop the subscription, you well, know, when you've had that's enough. true. You know, and we'll maybe talk about that uh, because as it relates to memberships and subscriptions, 
consumption is a really important part. So in that case, with a product-based membership, if you've got drawers and drawers of razors, it's a matter of time before you're going to stop because you're not consuming them or using them, right? So that's a big part of membership. Product-based memberships are really popular. You see these in all kinds of different markets, whether it be razors or coffee of the month, tie of the month, socks of the month, underwear of the month you name it of the month, they can create a membership and subscription around it. So product-based memberships is one. A second one is service-based memberships. A great example of this, uh, we have a client, Mary Claire Fredette, and she's a masseuse. Now, most massage studios, again, are going to hope that their customers come back and buy from them again and again. Where instead, what Mary Claire did was she created a subscription whereby her members pay a monthly fee and they get so many massages each and every month. Now, what that has done is is actually like created consistency in her business from a revenue standpoint, but it's also created consistency for her clients in getting the regular massage care because now that is part of their regular schedule. And we've seen this with places like barber shops. There's one here in Toronto that, you know, again, you pay a monthly fee and you get so many cuts a month. They're not hoping that their clients come back. They know with certainty that they're going to get paid from those clients. We've seen it with car washes. The same thing. Instead of paying for a one-time car wash, there's one in our area. You can go through one time for $9 or you can pay $10 a month and go through an unlimited number of times. It's a no-brainer in the way they've set that up. But here's what that has done. It's created tremendous stability for that car wash because they now know that they're gonna get paid every single month by thousands of customers. And that creates stability for them to which they can plan better, they can hire better, they can invest in marketing with confidence, knowing that that revenue is gonna be coming in and they're not starting from zero. So number one is product-based, number two is service-based. I'm thinking that maybe we should start a trademark of the month club at your heart law. What do you think? <laughs> I think so, but I do wanna say before we go further, there are two very magic words that you said here that every financial advisor mm. will tell you to do if you possibly can, and that is recurring revenue. Right. That is the beauty of these, right? Yeah, I mean, I love the concept. So the third type of membership. The third type is a knowledge-based membership. And this is the type that we help most people with. And it's where you take your knowledge, your experience, and you're sharing it with others. And people pay on a monthly basis to have access to that content. So as an example, there's a, a woman in our community, her name's Jennifer Chamberlain. And in her words, she's a 50-something mom who just had a passion for art. She had no experience in business, didn't have the idea to start a business, but she was passionate about sharing art with other women her age. And so she started this membership and it started with 30 founding members. And that started to generate some recurring revenue for her where she's teaching these women how to paint and how to become an artist. Well, after the first year that had grown to a hundred paying members after year two, that had grown to 200. And in year three, she really hit her stride. She went from 200 members to more than 2000 members. And that now is a multi-million dollar membership. And it's all through her sharing with other women, you know, what she has learned in how to create great art. And we have people who have memberships in all kinds of markets from photography and calligraphy to fitness and finance and music and art and health and dog training. Heck, we even have one woman, her name is Holly George, who has thousands of members and she's teaching them how to make balloon animals, for goodness <laughs> sake. So it doesn't matter what 
you have experience in or knowledge in, there's a way in which you can share it within a membership to create an amazing business, helping people either solve an ongoing problem or helping them master a skill. That's a and really amazing idea. So Stu, we have both studied your materials somewhat before this. It's a topic we're both very interested in. But what I want to say is you have a tried and true formula and that's what you're teaching people, right? Yeah, absolutely. Knowledge-based membership is not just about providing a whole bunch of stuff and then kind of giving people a login and a password and then go have at it, you know, and go find the stuff that's relevant for you. No, no, no. Like if you really want to succeed long-term with a membership, we really want to get clear on helping people go from where they are, perhaps like not knowing how to play the guitar to where they want to be, like being able to master the guitar and play the songs upon request as an example. But you don't go from not knowing how to play the guitar to becoming a great guitar player like that. It's a journey. And that journey is really important to clearly lay out for people so that they can see and identify where they should put their attention. Because all material in a membership is not going to be relevant for them. It's at their particular stage. And we want to serve them content that's relevant so that they're going to experience the most amount of progress. And long-term, when people are experiencing progress, they stay and stick as part of the membership. And in the membership game, one of the key words is retention. And that means like, how often people continue to stay month in and month out. There's a whole bunch of different ways to structure it. Within a knowledge-based membership, there's a number of different approaches that you can take. If you're teaching people, for example, how to master a skill, there's generally a progression to that, right? Like if, uh, if I want to teach somebody who doesn't know how to paint, you know, I've got to teach them the basics and work up to the more advanced skill sets. But if I'm teaching people more general topics, then yes, you can teach in a more broad way. But however, here's the most important thing. Not everybody is going to be at the same stage in their progression. And we want to really meet people where they are because the number one reason that people cancel from a membership is overwhelm. So just like you with this box full of razors that you're not using, the same is true for information. If people come into a site and they are excited in the beginning to have access to all this content, but each month that goes on, there's this weight that actually gets created psychologically if more and more content is being added and they're not consuming it, there's this feeling of guilt that starts to develop and it's a matter of time before they cancel. So in the membership game, the whole goal is to drive consumption and help our people get results. Because if we do that, if they continue to make progress and experience progress, they're going to stay, whether it's using the razors on a regular basis, whether it's consuming brownies of the month on a regular basis, or whether it's learning a new skill or solving a problem. If they're experiencing success, they'll stay. Okay. So I want to hear about the fourth one, because I think that pertains to what I'm doing. So we talked about the product-based membership. We talked about the service-based membership. Number three was the knowledge-based membership. And number four is a community-based membership. And this is really where you're bringing people who have a shared interest together and they're paying on a monthly basis to be able to have access to that community. So as an example, like I grew up out in the middle of nowhere. And when I say that, I mean like corn on one side, cows on the other type thing. So <laughs> if you had a peculiar interest or a passion, it was highly unlikely, unless it was related to farming, that somebody in our area was going to have that passion or interest. But that's what's so magical about the internet these days, because now we can tap into people worldwide 
who have those same passions and those same interests. So I'll just take Holly George as an example that we talked about earlier with the balloon animal making. You know, she has brought together thousands of people from all around the world who have a passion for making balloon animals. And it's this fabulous community of balloon animal enthusiasts. Now that would be really hard to find locally, but online, we can tap into all of the people who have that interest. And as a membership site owner, if we can create a safe community to bring those people who have that shared interest together, then people are willing to pay to be a part of it. That's great, Stu. We have to take a commercial break, but we'll be back with more Passage to Profit and Stu McLaren right after this. What are entrepreneurs' most valuable assets? Their passion and ideas. We can't protect your passion, but we can protect your ideas. Trust Gearheart Law to protect your ideas with premier patent, trademark, and copyright services. There's never been a better time to start your own business. Contact us at GearheartLaw.com. At Gearheart Law, we have years of experience protecting entrepreneurs' ideas and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software app, application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at Gearheart Law, www.gearheartlaw.com. Don't let the wrong protection strategy ruin your business. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection and are licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Contact Gearheart Law on the web at G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. Together, we can change the world. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now back to Passage to Profit. Once again, Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. And our special guest, Stu McLaren. We're going to continue the conversation. He is a membership and subscription service expert. And wow, what a way to make recurring revenue. I can hardly wait to hear the rest of what he has to say, but it's Kenya's turn to ask a question. So Kenya, super excited about what you're doing. And I just was curious, do you have to have a certain business model in order to get a subscription or a membership service to work for your business? I think for any business owner, where I would start is I would just start with your customers, the people that you're looking to serve. And I'd be asking questions like, what are they buying on a regular basis? Like an example would be Sarah Williams. You know, she owned a retail shop in Texas and she started to notice that her best customers were coming in the store and buying the same items on a regular basis. So it sparked an idea for her and she started ultimately a subscription box where she packaged those items that they were buying on a regular basis and she sold it as a subscription box membership. Now, initially she sold it locally to those customers, but then she expanded nationwide and she now has more than 3000 customers who subscribe to that subscription box. And what that's done is it's just transformed her business from, again, hoping that those customers come back and buy on a regular basis to knowing with certainty. And that changes the game for entrepreneurs. This is what I'm so passionate about. You know, as entrepreneurs, we navigate so many different challenges, mm -hmm. but we can eliminate one of the biggest ones, which is that financial uncertainty of knowing if sales are in fact going to happen next month or not when we have membership and subscription. So you absolutely can modify and add a subscription element or membership element to virtually every type of business. There are some exceptions, like for example, if you were selling tires, it's gonna be really hard to sell tires on a regular basis because well, people don't really need a whole lot of tires. But for most businesses, there are ways either 
to sell the same products on subscription or to add a knowledge-based element to any type of business that people would subscribe to accordingly. So Stu, I have a question. Before we came on, we were talking about the membership experience workshop that you run. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So essentially every year we train thousands of people, business owners on how to launch their own membership. And many times people think that, you know, you've got to have a big audience, tens of thousands or even thousands of people to do it. And it's just not true. All you really need is a couple hundred people, whether it's on social media channels or whether it's a couple hundred local customers as an example. Example. Like I think of Tom Butterfield, he's a, a chiropractor over in the UK, and he had just his customer base that he was working with, and he ultimately launched a online membership subscription to them. So he started with just the customers that he had. And again, look to transition to create more stability and provide that ongoing value to his customers. So every year we run a workshop and we teach people how to launch right away with their membership and subscription. And we teach it all free. It happens every year. And you can always find out more by going to themembershipworkshop.com. That's really great. And so how many people typically attend these workshops? Is it a community-based workshop? We teach it online for free and we'll have tens of thousands that will join us for the free component. And then if people wish to continue with us for an extended training program, we have typically anywhere between three to 5,000 people that will join us for that each and every year. So where do people go to sign up for the free one? And then I guess they can find out about the paid one from there. Membershipworkshop.com. What are some of the other more successful types of membership experiences you've seen come through and grow through your organization? There are so many, Richard, and I could go on for days, but I'll just rattle off a number of them. First off is Ginger Dean. So she's a psychotherapist and her business model was very traditional in that she worked one-on-one -on -one with clients. Well, during COVID, her business actually boomed because she specializes in helping women who are just coming out of a very toxic relationship. And so COVID kind of amplified a lot of that toxicity. And so she found herself literally working like 14, 16 hour days, booked back to back to back to back. And, you know, what she was finding hard was she loves her work. She loves helping these women, but she just didn't have scalability and or time for herself. She ultimately launched a membership and now has thousands of women that she gets to serve. And more importantly, she's helping a lot more people and she's reclaimed her time and she's got tremendous stability in her business with that recurring revenue. So Ginger Dean's a great example. She's helping women who have just exited a really toxic relationship and are doubting themselves and are hesitant to get back into the dating game. Many of them probably want nothing to do with men ever again. And she helps rebuild their self-esteem, uh, helps rebuild their confidence, provides them strategies on ways to identify the right type of partner, identify like what went wrong in the past relationship and what are those characteristics to watch out for. So really just helping these women get back into feeling good about themselves and begin that process of looking for a future partner. Many of the memberships actually combine the knowledge base and community elements. Another good example would be Scott Paley and Joan Gary. Joan Gary has been an expert in helping nonprofit leaders grow their nonprofits. So she was the expert, but again, just kind of like Ginger, her time was very limited in the sense that 
up to that point, she was working one-on-one -on -one with nonprofits. And so she was limited in the way in which she could scale. So along comes Scott. He was running a marketing agency and had been helping Joan with her marketing and suggested, hey, why don't we start a membership where you could share a lot of the same principles that you're sharing one-on-one -on -one with clients, but instead we could share one to many inside the membership. So they partnered up together and they now have a membership called the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. And they help over 5,000 nonprofit leaders and what's incredible about it is they've created this amazing community where nonprofits are able to converse with one another, share with one another, and you know get best tips and guidance from one another within their community. So a lot of knowledge-based memberships start with the idea of an expert, so to speak, sharing how to solve an ongoing problem or how to master a skill. But the magical part about that is when you bring all these people who are passionate about that topic together, it creates a natural community element where it takes it from just that expert sharing to now tapping into the collective wisdom of everybody that's part of that community. And that's certainly what Joan and Scott have done. So where did they do this? Did they do it on Facebook? Did they do it on a website? Was there What kind of platform would you use for this? Well, I'm very biased in the platform that I'm going to recommend because it's one that we've developed. Uh, you can find it at searchy.io. That's the platform that I recommend for delivering your content to your community. And the reason I recommend it is because you know, we really saw a gap in the platforms that we were being provided in the experience that they create for your members. And you've heard me share earlier that if you want a successful membership long-term, you've really got to drive consumption of your content and the results that people get. And very few platforms were focused on that. And that's why we doubled down on that experience. And so searchy.io is the platform. From a community element, you can start as simple as just having a Facebook group. It's just a place where people can converse and connect, but you really want both of those together. It's those two together that create the overall experience for members and really helps them drive progress and success and keeps the community flourishing. So maybe you could start a free group on Facebook and then say, hey, if you want to take it to the next level with us, go to searchy.io and join our subscription group. And what's the typical range of what people pay for these subscriptions in these various venues? It really depends on the market and what you're sharing. Typically, this is a very general, broad generalization of pricing, but if you're teaching more of a hobby type market, and that could be the things like making balloon animals, painting, guitar, training your dog as an example, those are typically going to be in the range of 10 to $50 a month. If you're teaching subjects that are helping people make money or save money, that could be you know business related. It could be like Scarlett Cochran, who teaches people how to manage their finances. Those memberships can certainly warrant a much higher price point, ranging from $50 a month to $100 a month. I've seen go up as high as $200, $300, $400 a month. Again, depending on what is being shared and who it's targeted to. So the more it's related to making money and saving money, then the higher price point it generally is going to warrant. Kenya. How does it come into play when you're trying to sell information or ideas? How could you build a subscription model around that? You know, within the knowledge-based membership, 
there are a couple different approaches. One is to help people solve an ongoing problem. So an example of that would be like, my puppy's wildly out of control and I want the perfect puppy. So that problem's not gonna solve itself instantaneously. That takes time, which makes it perfect for a knowledge-based membership. The second one is like, if you're helping people master a skill, we've shared examples of that, of like not knowing how to paint and becoming a great artist. That takes time. That's a skill set to learn or not starting a business from scratch and wanting it to grow. That takes time and that's a skill set to learn. But the third element is convenience. If you can provide people convenience on a regular basis, and I'll give you an example of that. So Patty Palmer, she had a blog and for years she would share her art lessons that she was teaching in her art class on this blog. Well, long story short, she realized, wait a minute, this could make a great membership. So she then turned it into a membership where she was providing art lessons for other art teachers. She has thousands and thousands of members. She's not teaching these teachers anything necessarily, but what she is providing is tremendous convenience because those teachers, they don't have to be, you know, lesson planning on the weekends or mm -hmm. late at night. They can go into the classroom with confidence knowing that they have lesson plans that are amazing and they can spend the time instead pouring into their students in the class. And there are all kinds of examples of these types of memberships. I think of Andrew Krauts in the uh, Australia, actually. He has a membership. It's a higher price membership. It's $350 a month. And what he does is he provides real estate agents, Facebook ad templates. So they don't have to become a Facebook ad expert. Instead, they use one of Andrew's templates and it helps them sell their houses easier and faster. And if we just take a step back and think about that, all they have to do is essentially make one extra sale per year and that membership has more than paid for itself. And that's really where the power of these types of convenience memberships come into play. But again, it's still a knowledge base. It's still him sharing the templates or in Patty's case, still sharing the lesson plans. But the focus is not so much on teaching people how to overcome a problem or master a skill, but instead providing a tool or resource that's going to help them do what it is that they're looking to do faster, better, easier. Well, Stu, I just have to say this is amazing information. <laughs> and I really hope that our listeners who are thinking about starting their own business really take this to heart because to a certain extent, the investment is almost minimal, right? You just have to take something that you're passionate about or you know something about and put it into a form that other people will find meaningful or attractive and get it out out there. I wouldn't say it's necessarily easy because it's never super easy, but this is easier than most other types of businesses that you would want to start. And it creates a lot of value for the members as well as the creator. So compliments to you. We have to take a commercial break, but we'll be back with more Passage to Profit right after this. Hi, I'm Lisa Askley, the Inventress, founder, CEO, and president of Inventing A to Z. I've been inventing products for over 38 years, hundreds of products later and dozens of patents. I help people develop products and put them on the market from concept to fruition. I bring them to some of the top shopping networks in the world, QVC, HSN, Evine Live, and retail stores. Have you ever said to yourself, someone should invent that thing? Well, I say, why not make it you? If you want to know how to develop a product from concept to fruition the right way, Contact me, Lisa Askeles, the inventress. Go to inventingatoz.com, inventingatoz.com. Email me, lisa at inventingatoz.com. 
Treat yourself to a day chock full of networking, education, music, shopping, and fun. Go to my website, inventingatoz.com. Passage to Profit continues with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. Just had an amazing discussion with Stu McLaren. And if you missed any part of that, you need to go find our podcast, Passage to Profit Show, and you can download it on any platform where you get your podcast. Only, only, but only if you're interested in making money. Right. If you don't want to make money, then don't, don't bother. Don't go. So, okay. <laughs> Anyway, it's time now for Power Move. Hey, Kenya, who's our Power Move for today? So our Power Move for today is going to Amani Kormodize. She is a fintech founder. And Amani is from Ghana, and she determined from when she was a child that she wanted to have a profession in healthcare. She saw how broken the healthcare system was and how it negatively impacted those in poor health and those disposed to poverty. And what she decided to do, instead of being a physician, she became a healthcare consultant that helped her see a gap in the market and create an opportunity for herself. Her mother had lost her job and she was in danger of losing her FSA and HSA dollars. And Amani quickly realized that 70 million Americans are enrolled in either an FSA or an HSA. And she decided to create Sika Health, which helps people use their FSA and HSA funds before they lose them. And in two weeks, she was able to raise $1.2 million and to date has raised $6.2 million. And according to Crunchbase, only 0.34% of Black female founders receive venture capital in 2021. And Amani to date has had the most significant early stage raises by a Black female founder. So she is our power move for today. Wow. That's true. Yeah. So those are health savings accounts, right? So it's money that you have taken out of your paycheck before taxes. And then if you don't meet your deductible or you have expenses that your insurance won't cover, you take that money out of that account and use it. But it's kind of a hassle. So people don't use it all all the time or they forget they have it or something, right? Correct. All right. It's paperwork, yeah. you know. So do I watch the newest Netflix series or do I fill out a form to get FSA reimbursement. So I think sometimes I think Mm -hmm. sometimes people wait to the last minute. I agree. It's brilliant. I think anything you can do to help is amazing. And and to actually get other people to give her money to run her business. (laughs) A lot of money. (laughs) It's amazing. It's truly that is truly a power move. I I, I bet she's got a pretty big health savings account now. I'm sure. (laughs) Seems like a pretty powerful lady to me. So excellent. Thank you. So on to my startup. So for those of you who haven't heard this before, I have a video directory of small businesses. Well, it was called Fireside. Now it's Blue Streak. I kind of took a break because I was trying to find money to do my website, but I found the money. So I'm going to start my website going again. It's a big project, but I've circled around around. There are so many benefits of it, but it landed in my brain last night. Again, one of the first benefits is as a small business owner, everybody knows they need video, but then what do you do with the video? And if the video is on your website, that's great, but that means people already know about you. So you have to have a place to put the video where people will find it and find you for the first time. So that's what this directory will do. And I'm using short and long video, a combination, but I used a website that was like a square peg in a round hole and it kind of limped along. And now I'm getting the real website made. So I'm pretty excited about that. And it's a subscription site too. So you can get different levels and get different benefits per level. So that was one reason I want to talk to Stu. The other reason is I just started a new podcast with Danielle Woolley. It's called the Jersey Podcats. It's all about cats. 
and we're building a community. And as of today, we have 65 people in our private Facebook group. I think we're probably going to have to go to searchy.io to get our subscription going once we get the interest. And listening to Stu's podcast on his website, I think we need to pull our members with a few questions and say, what do you want to get out of this group? It's about cats and it's about solutions for cats. And it started because we have a cat who has a problem scratching his eyes and the vets haven't been able to figure it out yet. So Stu, you will see me in, well, you probably won't see me if you have 4,000 people. (laughs) I'll keep an eye out for you though, Elizabeth. We'll get this cat membership rocking. And it's going to be knowledge-based and community. So it's kind of cool. Fits right in with what you do. So now we're on to our next presenter. And this is really cool for small business owners or any size business owners, really. It's called Ripple Analytics. It's Noah LQZ and it's a feedback system. Noah, welcome. Please tell us all about it. Ripple is an easy concept. Everyone hates the annual review or at best tolerates the annual review. Ripple replaces or supplements the annual review, that dreaded archaic exercise where you sit with your people for 20 minutes a year and tell them what they did wrong, right, and everything in between for the last 12 months. And we replace it with something more dynamic, more actionable. It's a feedback loop where we use survey analytics to gather data to see how your people are interacting with each other, how they're working together, their ripple effect on the people they come into contact with. That's our scoring system, the ripple effect score. And the way we do it is we drive feedback. Feedback is important on all levels because you can actually make data-driven decisions if you have objective feedback information to make those decisions off of. 80% of people quit their managers, not their jobs. Ripple is trying to empower managers by providing them information to make better decisions so that they can show their people because employees, human capital, talent, whatever you want to call the people that work under you, they're human beings. And so what we do is we harness the psychological health of a workplace, especially the modern workplace where millennials and Gen Zers really demand, they expect feedback. And if you give them feedback once a year, you're going to get a lot of glossy eyed looks and unfortunately higher rates of attrition. And um, in this day and age of the of the great resignation, the quiet quitting and all those other monikers that we hear, it's important for managers, leaders, owners of companies to get ahead of the curve and really see what their people want and create solutions around that feedback. It's anonymous based, five quick questions every month, and everyone gets to see their information. Everyone, meaning individual users, get to see their dashboard, and then team managers, leaders get to see the dashboard and data for their entire team. That's great. How does this work for smaller companies? How does that anonymous piece work? It's it's a question I get a lot, and the component of anonymity is is certainly compromised the smaller the company or organization is. We've had anonymity issues with six, seven, eight employees. But as anyone knows who's worked in a smaller organization, you're getting that feedback directly. You're going to know if Richard's having a bad day, if he's one of the five people you come into contact with every day. Or you're going to know he's having a great day. Same with Elizabeth, same with Don, same with Stu. You get the immediate feedback because you're working closely with them. On teams, on on organizations with 25, 30, 50, 100 you might not get that opportunity to see the impact of each of those 25, 30, 50, 100 people. And that's what Ripple really does. It provides the information that owners, executives, managers need to do their job better. If if we know that 80% of people quit their managers, what are you doing to empower managers to change that number? If you're doing the same old thing you've been doing for the last 5, 10, 15 years, it clearly isn't working. And with the generational attitudes towards feedback 
towards engagement, the importance of engagement, the importance of getting information from your people. If you're not getting that information, you're missing a huge opportunity to grow and grow hopefully by the P&L, by, by revenue, but also grow and strengthen your culture where people want to work with the people they're working with. And that's what we're all about. Yeah. Can the employees rate their managers? Is that part of the system? Unfortunately, we have two models. Our focus is on the feedback loop, meaning everyone on that team gives feedback to everybody else, whether you're a direct report, whether you're the manager. We do, because of popular demand, have the hierarchical approach where the manager uses Ripple to provide feedback to their direct reports. We are not big fans of that, but the market asked for it. So we created the model of basically looking at the annual review, what you do once every 12 months and replacing that with at least something that you do every month so that you can get more actionable, more timely information. The human brain only remembers things accurately for about six to eight weeks. So that statistic alone, that fact alone calls into question any annual review process because it's going to be artificially inflated or deflated based on the activities of that employee over the last couple months before that review. We're trying to get rid of that component. We're trying to get rid of unintentional bias. We're trying to really sort of level the playing field when it comes to seeing how the people within your organization interact with each other. Well, I do recall once I heard at a management training class or something that it's best to give somebody feedback at the time of the incident where you want to give feedback. So it's fresh in everybody's mind. And it is interesting what you say, that there's only a period where we actually remember so much. But still, the event that happened six months ago could have had an impact on the organization. So it's very interesting. Kenya, do you have any questions or comments? Well, I love that your platform allows for information to be more than once in a lifetime, right? Because I just feel like a lot of organizations don't get reoccurring information from their employees. And you made a good point about the review process. I feel like sometimes in companies, it's really one-sided. It's about the employee and their performance. It's never like, well, how am I doing as a manager, right? So my question is, in this hybrid working environment now, post-COVID, you have people working from the office, working remotely. How does this better equip managers in those type of hybrid working environments? It's a fantastic question. Ripple tracks five key personality traits. They're referred to as the big five in IO psychology. All of our surveys are vetted. The questions are created by our IO psychologist, Dr. Frank Shipper. And the way things have changed over the last almost three years is one of those personality traits that we track is consistency. And so when you ask about hybrid or remote work and how you track the abilities or the, the skill sets of your remote workers, consistency is a huge element of that. And when you have five, six people on a team, and let's say Kenya, Don, and Stu want to work remotely, they love it. They think it's it's great, right? Well, why do they think it's great? Maybe they're driven by different initiatives. But what I can do as a manager is I can look at the dashboards of each of those three people and I can see Kenya's numbers in terms of consistency are perfect. She didn't change from pre-COVID to COVID to post-COVID. She can work anywhere, right? She's a consistently good worker. Stu, his numbers are all over the place, right? No offense, Stu. Sorry, and Stu. so yeah. as a manager, and then John's sort of, you know, in between. So as a manager, I can tell, so Stu wants to work from home. Don wants to work from home. Kenya wants to work from home. As a manager, I'm, I'm like, okay, well, I, I don't know what to do. Now I can point to objective data that's collected over two years saying, well, look, guys, Kenya, her numbers are great. So she's definitely a hybrid or a remote candidate. If she wants to do that, that's fine. Stu, it looks like the data suggests that you need the, the structure of coming into the office 
Monday to Friday. Why don't we do this? Why don't we give you Tuesdays and Thursdays remote, see if the data plays out. And Don, we'll give you three days remote and we'll see if the data plays out. And then in six months, you go back to it. It's not a gut reaction. It's not a decision in time. It's a developed, almost an organic process of seeing and identifying who best fits those roles for hybrid and remote work. So what kinds of questions help ferret that out? We have five questions in each survey. We have five personality traits. So each of those surveys has one personality trait question per survey. So we're constantly getting information on consistency, constantly getting information on commitment, constantly getting information on conscientiousness from the people you work closely with. Not people in accounting, not people in sales, if you're not in those departments, from the people that you work closely with. And, and an interesting example is, let's say Don is in sales and he's crushing it. He's 150% over goal. And Kenya's 90% of goal. And we look at the information and we see that Don's coworkers really aren't thrilled with working with Don. That doesn't mean you get rid of Don. Don's 140% over goal. But Don might be a perfect candidate to work remotely because he doesn't play well with others in the sandbox put him on an island where he can do what he does well, sell the widgets. And then Kenya, is she's 90%. She's a little under goal, but everyone loves working with her. We added commentary functionality about four years ago to get more information for certain scores. Commentary is not required. You hit a little comment box after each question if you want to uh, provide a comment. The comments are obviously also have to be anonymous. You can't give yourself away. We have a disclaimer with the commentary saying, and remember in, in bold, remember to keep your comments anonymous. You don't want to give away your identity. And some people, because we're all different, some people don't care. Some people don't care if Richard finds out that I don't think he's prepared for meetings. And the interesting thing about comments is about 90% of them are on the, on the extreme. So if I give Kenya a one, never, I want to give her a comment as to why I'm saying never, or a five, always, I want to give her a comment as to always. The twos, threes, and the fours usually don't get a lot of comments because they are what they are. So do the questions change every month or are the same questions? We have a pool of over 130 questions. And they're all randomized. So we're all not completing the same surveys for each other every month. The primary emphasis is identifying and appreciating self-awareness. As part of Ripple, you, you complete a self-survey. You give yourself scores on the questions that your people are giving you. And so what we do is we marry up those two data point sets. And the closer those numbers are together, the more self-aware you are. Why is self-awareness important? Self-aware people are 23% more profitable, 18% more productive, 81% less likely to call an absent. So those are the ROIs. You know, I could talk about the Kumbaya component of Ripple in terms of gathering feedback, giving feedback, creating solutions about feedback, but there are real ROI numbers in terms of why engagement's important, why self-awareness is important, and why culture's important. Last point in terms of, of the ROI is valuation of companies. We have stats from a recent study, and I can provide the chapter I wrote in a, in a recent book that was published. 50% of potential acquirers of a company will walk away from a culturally misaligned company. So you're already reducing your market of potential acquirers by 50%. And then another 25% of those potential acquirers will reduce the purchase price by up to 22%. So those are the ROI numbers. They're real. They're, it's not a half a percent. It's not 1.2%. I mean, they're real numbers and, and really just hammering home the importance of stronger culture. And then we can get into the attrition and retention rates and all that kind of stuff, but it's never been more needed. And we're looking to help organizations, nonprofits, higher education. We're speaking with some professors at American University. There's no market that can't be helped, in our opinion, by Ripple. What is your website? 
ripplefeedback.com. So if people want to get your services, they go to ripplefeedback.com and then- There's a try it for free button. We'll get in touch with you. We'll show you how it works. We've got some measures that were taken at the beginning of the new year to, to drive usership. It's a monthly subscription model, Stu, so you'll be happy about that. Um, <laughs> the almighty recurring monthly revenue. Just click that tab and we'll be in touch. Sounds Excellent. great. Thank you. So Noah Pusey with Ripple Analytics and it's ripplefeedback.com. So now we're on to our next presenter, Don Schoendorfer. Don is making the world a better place one person at a time. I cannot believe what this man is doing. His company is freewheelchairmission.org. Don, please tell us all about it. Well, probably about 25 years ago now, I'm in Morocco on a vacation in a Medina, which is a very small, very old part of a city built probably during the Crusades. And it's crowded with people walking in different directions and they're they're selling their all their goods along the side of this dirt road. And between the legs of people walking crawls this woman, literally using her fingernails for traction, digging her fingers into the dirt and dragging her body a few inches at a time across the road. And people were trying not to step on her. And that's all she was worried about. It was someone stepping on her because she's down on the ground. And then she disappeared down an alley. And I'm, wow, what do I do with this? What do I do with this image, this, this, uh, this thought? You know, I'm a biomedical engineer and I got all kinds of things going on building my career and got lots of patents for other companies I was working for doing really complicated things. But then it just kept on coming back to me. Well, why was this woman like this? And then I looked into the situation and uh, I got a lot of help from World Health Organization. They told me there's 75 million people like that in this world, into developing countries. You and I never see somebody crawling in the United States on the ground. But just imagine what it'd be like if you couldn't walk all of a sudden and the impact that would put on your family. Someone has to take me to the bathroom. Someone has to change my clothes. Someone has to put a blanket over me. Someone has to feed me. And this is the way it is for 75 million people living in developing countries. So uh, suddenly decided I don't need to become a billionaire, which I wasn't going to make anyway. But I thought maybe I could do something here and come up with an inexpensive, durable, functional wheelchair. And, you know, our wheelchairs in this country will pay money, big money, to get a wheelchair as much as we can afford to get the best chair. We have insurance. We have all these things. And that's the way it is in developed countries. But in developing countries, they don't even have wheelchairs for sale anywhere because nobody has the money. They're too busy, you know, trying to keep themselves alive. So came up with this concept, came up with the name free because we're giving away these wheelchairs for free. And it's a wheelchair and it's definitely a mission. And since we started this in 2001, we've given out 1.3 million wheelchairs to 94 different countries around the world. And so I'm trying to show you how for $96, we can have a wheelchair made in China or in India, a very functional, very durable a wheelchair designed for the terrain in a developing country and have it delivered with training and adjustment for $96. That's wow. amazing. What about the wheelchair that you're donating? What makes that different from a normal wheelchair? Well, it's uh, it's built for a rugged terrain uh, because, you know, I, I describe the terrain in the developing country is much more like a construction zone for us. And and so our wheelchairs here in this country, they're expensive, but they're also not built for anything particularly challenging on the terrain. So we use mountain bike tires. We use steel. It's tested over and over again. And we've come up with these designs that are very rugged and durable 
and yet very functional and very adjustable. And because we uh, we only make two types of wheelchairs, and we're not, not trying to make any profit on this because it's all it's a nonprofit, we don't have to include things like liability costs for insurance for you know no fault insurance for medical purposes and. We can just have this all go into the production and then the delivery of the wheelchair. How did you pick which countries and how do you pick which people? That must be so hard. Both are uh, very hard. And, and we were accidentally very smart about this. Uh, it wasn't intentional, but we decided we would supply these wheelchairs to nonprofit organizations around the world and let them take this uh, responsibility because every country has different customs and mores and, you know, every, all that. And then we would train them how to do this job. And then uh, the way we picked uh, the countries is we made a very uh, moving website and we uh, put what we were doing on the website and uh, word of mouth spread. No, I can't give you 25 wheelchairs. We've got to ship you 550. That's what we can fit into an ocean container. No, we can't get them to you next week. It's going to take three months, maybe six months for you to get them. And then we tell them, well, you know, there's all kinds of different levels of need of someone who has a disability, a mobility disability. All they need is something that they're, they're strong, their arms are strong, they can propel themselves. Their other uh, are much more serious, and uh, that means a much more elaborate wheelchair. That's not what we can provide. We provide a very basic wheelchair. Uh, but it satisfies at least half the needs of the world. Thinking back of all the photographs I've seen of developing countries, I've never seen anybody in a wheelchair. Kenya, you must have a comment, I'm sure. Yeah, so Don, I mean, I commend you. What you're doing is just so admirable and miraculous on all different types of levels. Operationally, like, what does this look like for you on a day-to-day -day basis? I mean, you see like, there's all these needs that you're fulfilling. I like, What does your team look like? How does this work? Well, we have a development team, and that's what we call the people that bring in the money. And it's all from donations. And then we have a program team, which is very uh, trained on and how to distribute these wheelchairs, and do the audits to make sure the job is being done correctly, make the visiting uh, a lot more virtual now because of COVID and because of the internet availability. We can do a lot of this remotely. And then uh, we are really good at getting stories back. We're really, we see how important it is to be able to bring a picture back and the reason why you don't see pictures of people in developing countries crawling is because it's not it's not something anybody would want to. You have to look for these people because they're not out on the streets; they're in their back rooms. So we we are able to tell the story. It literally used the word uh, Richard used the word miracle. It literally is a miracle because people have if they thought they could get a wheelchair from the government, they'll put in an application. But decades will go by and. And pretty much they realize the government's not going to help them. So um, they've given up. And then all of a sudden you hear a knock on the door and I think your grandfather has a need for a wheelchair. What's a wheelchair? Well, let me show you because sometimes they haven't seen such a thing. And when you see this life change, you pick somebody up from the ground and they see your feet when you walk in. And you pick them up and you adjust, put them in a chair and then you know how to adjust the chair. You adjust the chair. And then you, you you look back and you you see them eye to eye, and it's almost like they're they're not the same person. Suddenly they've got this dignity back that they've never had. And you ask them what they're going to do next, and they well, you know they can't answer because they've never really thought of ever doing anything different in their lives. But they're happy tears, they're crying, they're wiping the tears from their face. Their family was their wheelchair. 
And think of the relief that they have now that grandpa can get outside or their son can go to school again, or, you know, all those things just all of a sudden you've literally changed their lives. So how can people here donate to your organization? Is there a subscription model to Stu's point? Or <laughs> well, you, you know, yeah, I'm glad Stu brought this up because we have been very conscientious about trying to get sustained repeated giving. We have a website, as Richard mentioned, Free Will Your Mission. We have many ways people can help us. I just wrote a book called um, Miracle Wheels. This explains this whole story that I tried to explain briefly here in quite much more detail. And, uh, you know, people sometimes get together in a church or a business and they raise enough money for a container of wheelchairs, which is about $50,000 for 550 wheelchairs. And I want you to appreciate the impact of this gift. You help pick some people up and you see the life change that, that you are responsible for. And then you go back and you tell your employees what just happened and what you just saw. Wow. Stu, do you have any comments or or thoughts? Don, I just, I love what you're doing, buddy. And I know from a nonprofit standpoint, as I said, my wife and I have our own, that one of the hardest things is being able to generate that consistent revenue and donations. And I love that you put the request out for a recurring donation. And the other thing that I would just share from our experiences, one of the things that works so well is when people can see and experience the story that you shared of that magical moment of somebody going from being on the ground to now being up in a chair and being able to see eye to eye with somebody. And from what we've experienced in our nonprofit is probably similar to you in that the more people can experience that, the more committed they get long-term. And uh, I would encourage you to think about like donors and approaching your top donors who may not be on a recurring basis to join you on a recurring basis and, and talk about the logistics of that from a business operational standpoint and talk about the mission of what you're trying to do. You know, one of the things that we made a mistake in our nonprofit for years was just not communicating with our donors about what we were trying to do and the challenges that we were having. And some of our donors said, Stu, like you're in the membership world and you're in the business side, like we would contribute on a regular basis. And, and even more, we contribute if we, knowing what it takes to, to run uh, this kind of a, a, an organization. And I think that like, you know, as nonprofits, we're always trying to do the most with the least, but we still need consistent revenue to be able to make it happen, right? And so I just think if you can go back to your donors and, and communicate the vision of what you're trying to do and talk about the importance of that stability, I have no doubt uh, see a lot of uh, donors step up that want to contribute on a, on a recurring basis. And that just transforms things for you, right? It just provides that stability. I have one quick thing to say to you, sir. So I know you had said that you, you may not be a billionaire here, but you are definitely doing God's work and your reward in heaven is great. And I'll tell you, God is going to make you a king in heaven. So this is, I was in tears when I was listening to your story and I just, words cannot describe how impactful your work is. So please keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, Dawn, I think you're a great spokesman for this because your passion and caring really come through. I think we're going to have to go to break so we can all have a good cry now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anybody listening, the website is freewheelchairmission.org and it's Dawn Schoendorfer. And if you feel moved by this, which we definitely are, we have an anniversary coming up. Maybe we just each give somebody a wheelchair for anniversary gift. <laughs> 
instead of getting stuff for each other. Anyway, please go visit the website and help Don with his mission. This is just amazing. So you are listening to Passage to Profit, Road to Entrepreneurship with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart, our special guest today, Stu McLaren, and we will be right back. There's never been a better time to start your own business. The opportunities are infinite and only limited by your imagination and enthusiasm. At Gearhart Law, we believe the most successful companies all have one thing in common. They start with a solid foundation first. Gearhart Law has years of experience protecting entrepreneurs, ideas, and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at www.gearheartlaw.com. Our professionals will create a custom strategy designed to fit your needs and your budget. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection, licensed, and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Visit gearheartlaw.com. Together, we can change the world. Visit G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now more with Richard and Elizabeth. Passage to Profit. Noah Fleischman is our producer here at Passage to Profit, and he never stops trying to make sense of the future by looking at the past. About 20 years ago, there was an experiment that went on out west. Some neurologists were working with Alzheimer's patients, and they said, I wonder what would happen if we could reconstruct a little part of their past and reintroduce them to it. That's exactly what they did. They invented what looked like a movie set. It was Coney Island in the 1930s, complete with a little soda shop, a candy store. They walked these patients in there. Do you know what happened? These ill, elderly Alzheimer's victims suddenly became cogent. They started talking laughing, reacting with one another. It was unbelievable, and it probably added a good year onto their lives or more. What's the takeaway from that? We're living in a world now that's more and more virtual every day. And what is it that we love the most about the virtual? It's the ability to look at the past. The pictures, the artifacts, the scanned images. Think of all those Facebook groups you have out there of the good old days. It's important. Those photographs, those images, are our home. And that connection with our past keeps us centered. In fact, much like those patients, it's going to keep us living a good long time. Passage to profit and we're winding things down. It's been an amazing show though. Group discussion time. The question today, and we're going to start with Stu, if you could start another business or project on top of everything you're already doing, you had the time and money, what would it be? Wow. My wife and I talk about this a lot. You know, what's interesting is there's a lot of businesses right now that are perfectly primed to be handed off to the next generation. And what I mean is like tens of thousands of baby boomers who own small businesses like car washes and laundromats and all different types of small businesses. And I just think that there's what's so exciting about this is my wife and I both invest in real estate. And we approach a property and we look at it like, okay, will it cash flow? And if so, then it's a great investment. And these businesses are very similar. A lot of these businesses, like we're looking at one this morning and it's a key making business. Like, you know, like when you go and you get your keys made and yeah. uh, it cash flow, positive cash flow is over $200,000 a year. And the business is selling for just over 400,000. And if you think about that for a minute, like that's an amazing investment. And so this is basically somebody, it's a baby boomer who wants to retire. They've had this business for more than 20 plus years and now they're looking to retire. And I'm just like, man, that's incredible. So 
you know, if I was starting all over, I'd be looking at that. And then of course, I'm very biased toward online businesses. And a huge reason for that is just that they're so profitable. You know, we have very little overhead. Uh, it is, there's very little to get in and yet the profit margins are so high. And why that's great is that it gives us, the entrepreneur, lots of room to make lots of mistakes to figure stuff out and still uh, be profitable. So uh, I love knowledge-based businesses. I love knowledge-based businesses that have a recurring element to them. Um, but I'm also very curious about uh, a lot of these small businesses that are in this transition period. And I think there's a great opportunity there too. Excellent. So Noah, if you could do another business on top of everything else, but you had the time and money, what would you do? So it's funny. One of the ideas I had uh, earlier, well, last year, I guess, um, was sort of tied to Stu's um, concept of succession. A lot of those small businesses, they might have children, but they're not interested in in taking over the companies and finding buyers uh, that would take over those those companies and make the succession planning a lot easier. Because you know, in my previous life, representing a lot of construction companies, smaller construction companies maybe the kids just aren't interested in taking a company over. They've got different interests, the different uh, initiatives. Um, but the one that I, I really kind of am interested in uh, because I do some class identification, my old lawyer days is using AI to, to kind of just search various consumer report sites, Yelp reviews to find out if there's commonality in terms of complaints about dealing with certain um, elements in corporate America with that one might serve the basis for creating a class action. From an altruistic perspective in terms of holding corporate America accountable, not so much in terms of generating attorney's fees, which as you probably, as Richard probably knows, is, is sometimes a large component to class action prosecution. But yeah, just trying to level the playing field. What about you, Don? Is there something else you would do if you had the time and energy? Well, I'm committed to nonprofit uh, concepts here, but uh, you know the, the wheelchair program is going to go on for generations and generations. Seventy-five million people in, in need, but you know these developing countries have no capacity to deal with the, the people who are dis have disabilities. So that's why we're coming in there to give away wheelchairs, but. Uh, you know, I've had the privilege of going out and getting to know a lot of the people that get these wheelchairs. And and what do you want to do next? Every now and then you get in an answer that this man, is, this woman is thinking. They have a brain. They want to do something. They want a career. They want a job. Now that you got a wheelchair, they could probably, they have some mobility. But where are they going to get the money to get a job? Where are they going to get the training? So what I want to do is start up an organization. Uh, who can provide a scholarship. Um, universities in developing countries are very inexpensive. In Argentina, the university is free. All you have to do is get to the university. You have to pass qualifying exams, but if you get in, your education is free. Vocational training could be $50, $100, $200. Fix a cell phone. Repair a broken appliance. Uh, how about doing mails? How about you know uh, doing a salon job? Uh, there's so many things that we could just give them a little bit of a start, you could change your life. Right. Well, I hope you and live a long time. So you can see some <laughs> of these things come true. And what about you, Kenya? 
I would own a few Chick Fil A's and a water <laughs> and a, a water filtration company. So those are my two things that I would yeah. be doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about you, Rich? I'd probably start a nonprofit. You know, we are big proponents of uh, science and technology in the intellectual property business, and. Elizabeth and I have talked about starting a scholarship fund for people who are maybe from disadvantaged backgrounds, but have an interest in pursuing a career in science and technology and maybe providing scholarships for that. Yes, we have. Well, for me, and I've talked about this on the show a few times, if I had the resources and connections and time and money, I would really dig into pollution from the 1970s and 80s of hard metals in the water and the uptake in vegetation and rice and what we feed our children and just try to see if there was even some sort of link between that and autism. Maybe I couldn't prove it, but just see if there was a link between autism and the metals that children are ingesting in rice. Just try to move the needle a little bit to see if we could figure out some of the causes of some of these childhood diseases that didn't used to be so bad. So the PhD chemist is coming out to do research. That's, I love that's it. That's what I would do. So now for the wrap up, I'm going to go over everybody's website one more time. So our guest was Stu McLaren. He's a membership and subscription service expert, and you can find him at stu.me slash start. You can also find his his platform for doing your subscription services on searchy like search ie.io and membershipworkshop.com and villageimpact.com. Yeah. And so many of our listeners are in the category of thinking about starting a business, going to these websites and learning more is a great place to start. Right. And then we had Noah Pusey with Ripple Analytics, ripplefeedback.com. If you have 25 or more employees and I don't know, maybe it'll work for fewer and you want to get feedback constantly to help your organization run better. Yeah. Tell off your boss for heaven's sakes. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, and then we have the guy who made us all cry. <laughs> Tom Schoendorfer with free wheelchair Go to his site, pay for a wheelchair for somebody who's crawling on the ground and probably never seen one before. We need to sign off this week, but we will return next week uh, with another episode of Passage to Profit. But before we go, I'd like to thank the Passage to Profit team, Noah Fleischman, our producer, Alicia Morrissey, our program director, and Mark Wilson, our syndication manager. Our podcast can be found tomorrow anywhere you find your podcast. Just look for the Passage to Profit show. And don't forget to like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And remember, while the information on this program is believed, to be correct. Never take a legal step without checking with your legal professional first. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week.